On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be talking about a return to the craft of media planning, how great media planning is a balance of art and science, and how, as an industry, we became blinded by tech and innovation in recent years. So stay tuned as we talk about the craft of media planning on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. Today, as mentioned, we are going to be talking about a return to the craft of media planning. And I'm delighted to be joined by Maxine Hans, who is the General Manager at Visium in Ireland. Welcome, Maxine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for joining me. And first things first, how are you getting on? How's life? I, I used to say, how's work from home? It, I just say, how's work? How's working now? How's it going? I'm coping very well, although I've I've had a realisation over the last uh, week or so that I have become utterly obsessed with the weather, which is really quite depressing. Oh, so because... you're fully Irish now. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know about you, but the sudden downpour of snow about five minutes ago yeah. was a little bit of a shocker to me. So yeah, that's... it's a... Uh, uh, yeah, it's it, it's, it, it is an interesting as well, but it's it's definitely an Irish thing. It's it our weather is a bit like Goldilocks's porridge. Um, it it it's too cold. Oh, now it's too hot, and it has to be. I don't know what the temperature is, but it has to be just right. Too hot, we don't like, and too cold, we don't like. But you're welcome. Yeah, you're Irish now. Complain about the weather. Here we are. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so as I say, thanks for joining me. You wrote an article. This is going to be more of a chat than kind of a, an interview type thing because this is something I'm passionate about as well. So you wrote an article in today's Irish Times, which I urge everybody to read because it's a brilliant piece. And it pretty much talks about celebrating or a return to the art or, 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 you know, the craft of media planning. So you started off, which, which brought a smile to my face, by talking about the good old days being at, at remember those times when we had an award ceremony, which even as bad as some of them were, I kind of, I'd bite your hand off to go to one now um i remember them fondly someone said to me last week i'm never not going out again that's the way i feel about these award ceremonies i used to pick and choose the ones i'd go to i'd go to anything now um so you started off talking about that um and actually your point was that which i totally agree with that in too many of those ceremonies in in terms of categories and the construct of marking within the categories they were obsessed with innovation now you're not saying innovation isn't important because absolutely it is but just talk to me about that point for a minute what did you mean by that yeah, I, I guess it's a little bit of a fine line because I, I run the risk of people thinking that I'm not into pushing the boundaries and challenging existing thinking. And that's absolutely not the case. But I think I've been concerned for a while that there has been so much focus for the industry on the word innovation. Mm. And if you look at some of the entry criteria for the awards, there were times where they were allocating up to 25% of the marks just for doing something new. And personally, I really don't think that's the best way to encourage fresh and challenging thinking. Doing innovation for innovation's sake just really isn't the right way to go. If people are looking at innovation and it's grounded in insight and it's achieving the client's business goals and we're challenging how we're doing things and we're looking for better ways to deliver results, then that's where we're going to hit pay dirt and that's where we're going to make really amazing campaigns, but just not innovation for innovation's sake. Yeah, that's something that, and we, we'll get into it in a, in a bit more detail, I think, um, as we as we chat through. So, but it is something that has come up a lots of different times in different subjects in this podcast about like one of the things I'm always saying is we are like just obsessed with the shiniest new thing. We And we get terribly, awfully excited about things that are relatively small and we think they're great because they're new and you know it is I find we have to rein ourselves in sometimes speaking of awards uh, we mentioned this before you you mentioned the Effies in your article and the thing you you like you're a big fan of the Effies it's fair to say so you can kind of give a bit of context of what they are but you're a big fan of them because one of the, the things you think is great about them is is it a welcomed return to 
I suppose what we call a celebration of, of kind of rigorous or true planning. So given what we talked about awards there, what's different about the EFIs? Uh, well, the EFIs are actually global awards, um, which we are launching in Ireland for the first time this year, which is really, really exciting. And yeah, you're, you're 100% right. I am a big, big fan of the EFIs. And I think that there's a number of reasons that, in my opinion, the EFIs are probably different to a lot of the other awards that are out there. At the heart, they're looking for the entrance to really demonstrate a truly connected story. So no, they're not asking the paper writers to kind of show a single big idea, but they actually want us to show how we linked the business context and the challenges to the goals that the business needed to deliver, pulling out audience insights, trying to get them, um, trying to tie them to the creative idea, to the media selection and usage, and then ultimately ensuring that the KPIs are tied back to those goals. So they're looking for that red thread that is so essential to a truly effective and brilliant piece of work. And the FEs are structured so that we have to bring that to life. And it is collaborative and everything is coming through. And that, for me, is what's really, really exciting about them as an award ceremony. And so mm. I suppose what I also love and I think what's really important for me is the fact that the papers are shared they're publicized so that we can actually see and learn from each other and there's full feedback given so god forbid the worst happens we will know why we didn't win if we don't win and again I think for me that's what the FEs are about continual learning and raising our games learning from each other and Um, it's a celebration so hang on a minute they're published. Does that mean I can't um, fabricate my entry because it's going to be in the, pu- in the public domain? I can't overstate claims or over overestimate the impact that this <laughs> tiny little partnership did, that it, it actually sold, it raised sales globally by 78%, this partnership with a digital media publisher? Uh, I don't know if I'll enter them. Um, I- I was going to say, I I don't think anybody, strictly speaking, fabricates their papers, but I do think that, um, I think that there is if you're not forced to kind of really follow the flow, I think that there is a risk that people exaggerate kind of the the potential impact and they don't Mm. acknowledge the impact that other media might have Mm. happened in addition to that kind of one single idea. Honestly, I think in a lot of these papers, there's overestimation. But yeah, so all joking aside, a great thing about that is like, I do think published papers is a really good thing because I think as an industry we don't have a body of work that's published that's on the record that we can all learn and grow we don't write enough things down as an industry that's been that's been around for so long we have incredibly bad kind of precedence in terms of documented evidence so that's a good thing on the FEs yeah that, that all sounds great and I'm a big fan of that because I definitely do think I agree with this I, I don't know what, what the right way to put it is but kind of a, a, a fascination with gimmickry and tactics and awards have often celebrated relatively small things way too much so I think I'm going to get I'm, I'm really bad at stats but I think I'm going to throw this out there I think I read last year that 80% of the awards handed out a can were given out for kind of short term campaigns which actually just doesn't doesn't seem right to me at all and I think I've chatted about this a lot I've chatted about this with me and Kieran had a chat about this Kieran Cunningham had a chat about this and we're saying do you remember the days when you when you'd kind of go to an awards ceremony and, and you'd see an ad or even global ones and you'd see an ad and you'd say I remember that ad oh yeah that was a brilliant campaign because they actually were big campaigns that happened in the real world you would have seen them a consumer may have may remember them um, and that's what the big campaigns used to do big awards you'd remember those ads but now increasingly when I go to an awards entry in Ireland and I meet part of the industry or even when I'm a judge and I'm reading papers some of these things I've never seen most of these campaigns. They're, they've completely passed me by because they're so small and tactical and executional that you'd wonder, you'd ask yourself how important or how effective 
was this little kind of tiny little small thing that I'm reading about and how could it account for that seismic uplift in sales so I'm danger going down an Elon Musk rabbit hole here again so just to rein myself back in Something that I want to pick up, pick up on, you talked about, which I love, innovation for the sake of innovation. And I think there's a lot of people guilty of that. Um, it's an industry, I think, that, that's guilty of that sometimes. Do you think that we reward the often small executional innovation and we don't reward or value so much the real rigor and kind of craft of brilliant planning? Yeah, I I actually think we're all guilty at times of wanting to run with a shiny new toy and do the really cool stuff that's a bit different. It's only human nature. We all want to do those elements. But I really firmly believe that sometimes it's the really thorough, detailed planning that is actually going to tip a campaign over from being a good insight-driven strategy to a really great campaign that delivers the level of results that our clients need. I think what can happen is sometimes people take great planning for granted because we've been doing it for years and we really do know how to plan well. I'm, I, I think the the methodologies, the concepts of great planning are absolutely all there and they're really solid. But I think that there's an assumption that because we've got those methodologies and we know what we're doing, it can be delivered quickly and it's just done in a kind of a click of the fingers. But really great planning actually still needs thinking time too. People need time to step back and consider the detail to make the tweaks and adjustments that let them see what the kind of the possible impact is from different scenarios. So pushing ourselves to think about all the granular details can honestly move a campaign from being just good to absolutely great. And I think that's the bit that people need to kind of step back and remember a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because I see this and I've joked about this before and like anything else, there's there's usually some truth behind a joke. So, you know, I've seen a lot of responses briefs. I'm not even talking about, I've been involved in some global pitches where and seen lots of global pitches where, you know, a good 50% of the effort or the kind of the thought behind the, the big idea goes into a relatively small thing. It might be, might be say, you know, 10% of the budget that we spend 50% of the time talking about because it's a big, it's it's a big strategic idea that we want to bring alive with media partnerships or that kind of thing. And then, you know, and I'll use this deliberately, the boring stuff, if you will, like the <laughs> deployment of TV, we're going to have to, you know, the stuff that is like outdoor and TV that is like 80 to 90% of the budget, that gets a few slides and it's completely out of kilter in terms of that. Now, is that because, well, it could be lots of different things, but do you think that's because, look, trust us, we know how to lay down TV plans. We know what we're doing here. We're not going to come in and do a deck and show you in the, what's gone on behind the scenes to get us to this, you know, what's the effect of cover and channel mix and all that kind of stuff. It's just boring. And actually media partnership stuff is a sexy bit. We love it. Clients love it. They bring it to life. Trust us. We know how to lay down TV campaigns. Do you think that's what it is? The disproportionate amount of airtime that partnerships get versus the money they get, you know, it's out of, out of kilter to a degree. So do you think it's just because trust us, we can do this? Or are we not doing enough to kind of show that craft and the rigor that goes into it? What are your, what are your views on that? I, th I think you actually have a really good point there. We, we do know how to plan. So we can work through the relevant processes to get those bits right more efficiently. So the amount of time we spend on them is proportionately less because we can do them and do them efficiently and do them well. And like you said, a partnership or something that is kind of a little bit more exciting and more complex, they are more complex mm. so that they need more time to work up and get right. And ultimately, they need more time to explain. 
But I also, you talked about trust and you've hit the nail on the head. I think that there's an innate trust from our clients. And what I mean is they know us, they trust us. And so it's often taken as a given that we'll get the fundamental planning bits right. And hence, they want more time in our presentations spent on the details like the partnerships because they need to understand our thinking behind them and what they'll do for the brand. So to an extent, the split of time you're talking about is probably a reflection of how good we are at the core elements of our job and the fact that we have built that trust and we have demonstrated that we can do the planning well. I just think that sometimes we should be acknowledging that planning more frequently in presentations to really bring it to life, to keep that trust and to keep that security going. Because I think each time you review the core planning, just making small tweaks, just making small changes, mm. rather than taking it for granted that, oh, we can roll what we did before, mm. isn't the right thing to do. And those small tweaks and changes need to happen. And we need to make sure we communicate those to our clients. Yeah. And I, look, nothing's ever, there's nothing in life that you could do that you couldn't optimize slightly better. And the, the big enemy of all this is, is time, essentially. So if you take radio, for example, you know, if we buy whatever you say, you buy a breakfast show spot the difference between 7.15 and 8.15 which you're paying the same price for effectively could be you know 50 60 thousand people but to go through line by line quarter hour listenership and you know unpack all that you never get anything done if you're doing it across different stages with more channels and that's just an example of the minutia where you can tweak things to the we'll get to this thought about time being our biggest enemy but i think it's a, yeah it's a, it's an interesting point because again I, I chatted to people about this before and i wonder what what do they what do we do all day when there wasn't a big kind of digital ecosystem. What was I talking to clients about? And you take, well, actually an outdoor, we used to go through 200 page outdoor site lists, page by page. I don't want that one. I would, I want the one on top of that one. I want the one around the corner. Now you wouldn't have a conversation about outdoor site lists. You might say, I want that one in Donnybrook or whatever. We used to go line by line through for clients. So I think you can just fill your days being busy. And that's another kind of interesting debate that we'll get to now because the discussion or, or an ongoing thought about planning and particularly media planning as to whether it's an art or a science, um, I think it's probably a bit of both. And there is something you alluded to in the article, and it is a drum I've been banging for a long time. And that's the fact that we are, everything moves faster now. Life is faster. We have less attention. We, we've an insatiable desire to start doing. It's an itch that we kind of have to start getting into it. And sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes our desire to, to get cracking on something often fast tracks us. And we don't do that really, really important, deep exploratory work at the start of, of you know, any kind of strategy project that we do. And it's something when I'm always training people about, I try and tell people, it, as hard as it is, try not to jump to a solution when, because you can do that easy when a client's briefing you and you start to even subconsciously start to say, oh, I think I know what we could do here. And you start to jump into executions. And I say, do whatever you can to not jump into that because once you've mentally gone down a first route it's hard to divorce yourself from that it's hard to let that go and you get stuck in a river that inevitably leads you to the, to the same solution so i've worked with you for a long time we do drive each other mad sometimes well you drive me mad sometimes i'm sure i don't drive you <laughs> mad but you definitely drive me mad sometimes but why yeah, why that is i understand why that's coming from and that's because you have a real passion for what you do and you do have real passion about doing things the right way and treating media planning as a, as a craft. So when you talk about the robustness of media planning, what do you, what, what type of rigor in what areas, what do you think is really important? And, not, and I'm not saying that this isn't being done, but just a reminder to say that, you know, it's worth asking ourselves, do we do enough around these areas? So what type of things 
I think that's a really good question. I suppose at the core of it, it's the elements that I've, I've kind of listed out in the article, and that's not me trying to direct people to go read the article as well and all the rest, but it, it's very much around challenging the brief and really understanding what media can do to help the business grow. It's about um, the detailed work to establish the right budget and taking the time to understand the audience and their behaviours. It's about how can we connect to them in a meaningful way. But at the core, when I'm talking... And when I'm kind of putting my super nerdy hat on, which goes on quite often, as I think you know, and kind of most of Dentsu know, <laughs> but at the core of what I'm talking about for robust planning is the details that go into the implementation planning. And it's taking the time to get the right media and establishing the right KPIs and then really drilling in to each medium to optimize the planning. And whether that's drilling into, for example, the channel mix or the time of day or the day of week and the formats, it's the little details that can actually push a campaign up a notch. You were talking earlier about the difference between perhaps a 7.15 and an 8.15 radio spot can kind of make a difference. And you're right. Our technology doesn't let us have enough detail to be able to do that fast and efficiently because we, we don't have the automated systems yet. But what we can do is really drill into understanding our consumer and understanding the audience behavior and understand the time bands and really push things so that we are optimizing the overall brief and the details that we want to get. And then we can make sure that the media is delivering to that. I think if you wanted an analogy, if you think of media planning as an art form, which I very much do, but I'm also um, very much enjoying the art lessons that I've been having recently and things like that. So we can use a great big roller to get coverage and slap the paint on and get kind of mass paint over absolutely everywhere. But if you want to make a work of art, you need to put in the details. And to be able to put in the details, you need the specialist brushes, you need time, you need an eye for the detail to really get them. And that's when you create a really amazing piece of art. Hmm. That's what I'm saying about robust media planning. It's yeah. the detail, not just taking it at kind of superficial level of, oh, I'm going to buy 150 ratings on TV. Hmm. It's actually, how am I going to buy them? How am I going to deliver them? Who's going to get to see them? What's the best mix? What's the best programming? All of that detail needs to come into it. Hmm. I love that analogy. I'm definitely going to steal that and pass that on <laughs> as my own. Um, but you know, but you're right. Like even in terms of what moment in media, what's a, what is that moment, that headspace we want to, to own in media like a rating is a rating is a rating but what what are people how are they feeling when they're watching different things in terms of and even in terms of tv programs so i, I agree with all that and there's there's quite a few things that i think can often be overlooked that you mentioned in that and yeah i definitely think if you're interested in, go check out the the article because you have uh, you've listed out quite a few things a lot of people will know it but it's kind of just i found it really insightful to just kind of it made me ask a few questions of you know, how often do I push back on A or B or or how much time do I spend on that? And do I question things enough? So one of the things that, and you'll know this, I say to people, when you get a brief in, you have to pull it apart, question it, obviously without, without going back and driving the client mad, but you have to send check. And my thing is, if you, if you don't go back with questions or challenges or, you know, well, this doesn't look right to me, you've you've effectively accepted the challenge so if the client says here's the brief here's the budget i have here's what we want to do here's the target audience here's where growth's going to come from and i want to respond to that you've accepted that you're you're going to deliver those challenges you're going to deliver that growth um at the end and and quite often then when it doesn't happen you go well it was never going to happen i wonder how often do does a planner go back and say you know this doesn't seem right in a declining category with a flat budget with increased competitive set increased ad spend against it Where's growth going to come from? I just don't see how we're going to grow by 
3%, given the category's going down and we're losing market share. Why is anything different going to happen? I don't know how, how often that happens. And similarly, when we think about budgets, I've just been involved in a fairly rigorous, um, with lots of people involved, a budget exercise, which was basically what share of voice do I need to deliver what this share of market. The quick way of doing it is look at ad spend. But then when the people involved in it looked at the ad spend figures, we all know ad spend is wrong, but the gentleman's agreement was it was so wrong for everybody that it didn't matter because it was consistently wrong for everybody. So it leveled it out. Actually, what happened in this category was it was massively over-reporting traditional media to, you know, whatever, like about 20%. And it was massively underestimating digital media, which tend to be some of the really hard, sharp performance clients by about 30 odd percent. So you're starting off picking a share of market share voice figure with a completely nonsensical share of voice figure. And the whole thing just became mad. But, but the to do that properly took loads and loads and loads and loads of hours from lots and lots of different people. So what do you think about all that, that kind of, which isn't, you know, it's not sexy. It's not going to not, you know, excite most people, but by God, when we did it, I found it really enlightening. It was a brilliant piece of work to do. What would things like budget setting and all that, what are your thoughts on that? And do we do enough in that area? Do agencies generally, you've worked in a few different places, do agencies do enough in that area? Well, I suppose often by the time we're being briefed, the budget has gone through so many rounds of approval internally for the client that there is little scope to play around with it. And I I do get that. So I understand where clients are coming from, they're kind of working and that they've managed to kind of build up a business case from their perspective. But I also agree with you. I think that there's an awful lot of great thinking out there from media agencies showing how we can help establish and we can help our clients establish what the optimum budget level is. I I heard about the kind of the piece of work that you're talking about and I have to admit I cannot wait to see the approach because it's it's kind of that's manner to me that's exactly what I want to be hearing and seeing other people are doing from my perspective for the budget it's, it's often a case of putting together a number of different methodologies that can be overlaid with each other and challenge the outputs that each methodology has got to ultimately tease out what the right level of spend is needed over the years and this is kind of across my career in kind of multiple agencies and kind of very much so within Visium and Dentsu I've worked with teams on both top-down and bottom-up budget budgeting. So using some of the classic e-share of voice routes or budget allocator tools, media weights analysis, performance projections, all of those elements. But what I would say is in each case, they need to be tailored to the client and the individual situation. And they're very much which ones you can apply and how you can approach it are driven by the depth of data available. So overall, we can absolutely help add another layer Um, to the client's internal analysis of their marketing budgets and their requirements. And I would actively encourage clients to be talking to their teams and asking for that assistance because there's so much work that we can do. But you're right, it does require time and it does require a lot of detailed analysis to tease out the right facts. Because if you take literally just share a voice spend at a kind of top line superficial level, that's not enough. Mm. That's not going to give you full direction. But if you overlay Mm -hmm. all of the different kind of options that you've got, you'll come out with a really strong case to be able to take that the client can take to their business to explain this is the budget we need. And this Mm -hmm. is why, although at this moment in time, I've only got say 500,000 or a million, but this is why I actually need 1.3 million because, and this is what it will do. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of it, like, because look, let's be honest that some of the, the relationship for a while had gone, had become very, very transactional. So, and I don't think, and I, I think that was driven by procurement, but I, I think 
the agencies have had a part to play in allowing themselves to be marginalised because they hadn't done a good enough job in kind of shining a light and, and standing up and being proud of what they do. So it's not just about buying a rating at a price. It's way more important. And I don't think the industry, didn't, the media agencies did a, a good enough job in um, proving their worth. So fees and contracts have been, the pricing has been driven down and we're, we're quite tight for times. We don't have a lot of errors on things and quite often these things to be done properly can be done out of scope. They're definitely worth doing. But I think, again, you just don't have a huge amount of time because we, we tend to be burnt out in terms of time doing quite a lot of reporting on things that we'll, we'll touch on in a second. May not be that important. I'm going to move on to this thing that we've talked about for quite a bit, which is, spoiler alert, I'm going to have a little bit of a rant because I, I really like this point. Like there's lots of, I'm a great man for quotes. There's lots of quotes and there's two I'm going to talk about here. There's the Einstein one that said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and defining that problem properly. And then after I've done that, I only need five minutes to get to a solution. And I really like that one. There's a similar one where Lincoln said kind of the same thing, but he said like, if I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend six hours sharpening my axe and then I'll, I'll whack it down in the next two hours because I think starting too quickly the blunt axe you won't get it done but from to the bystander ferocious chopping with a blunt axe looks good it looks to me like this guy's super at it he's really busy look how hard he's working the guy sitting down sharpening his axe would start to annoy me after a while saying when is he going to start doing it so but I think there's this in our world the kind of the sharpening the axe is the kind of tools that we have at our disposal all these things these kind of things the exploratory things that we talked about the rigor the kind of seemingly useless or kind of things that don't seem to go anywhere. I'm not sure where this is going. I'm not sure if there's anything in this, this kind of audience inside bit. Those things are really, really important before the work that you do before you get into the brief and stuck into the answer is definitely the most important part of it. So do you think people do enough of that? Generally, I'm not, you know, just, I'm not talking about individuals, just generally in life and in any side, do you think we spend enough time sharpening axes? <laughs> <laughs> that is a tough one. I think time is obviously a factor when people on whether people will take a step back and think about the challenge before finding a solution. But I also think that there's an element of human nature. And I know I've kind of said this for another answer, but I think there's an element of human nature that people just want to roll up their sleeves and get going. So I think some of it comes down to our training. And if we are actively encouraging people to step back and look at the challenge, and I'm not talking about just challenging the client brief, mm. but taking a step back and challenging and looking at all of the information that we've collated around the audience and the category, and we actually make sure that we are pushing people and encouraging them to ask questions, we kind of essentially what we want to do is create a whole team of annoying children who keep doing why, but why? Why is it that we way? We don't want no, that. No, no, I have one. We have one at home. We did. We definitely don't want that. Trust me, mad all day. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do want is for people to be looking at all of that information and looking at all of the data and looking at the audience and questioning why is it that way? Mm -hmm. Why did that happen last time? What if we did it this way? How does that work? If we can encourage people to be stopping and thinking about those questions and we actively do it and they see it and they participate and they see the net result of that, then I think people would pause before jumping into the solution. And mm -hmm. I think from my perspective, this is really about encouraging our teams to be curious, asking every single person in our team to be curious and be thinking about things, not just taking stuff for granted mm. and as, as a given of it is this because it, that's the way we do it. It's what we want is an entire team of people who are asking those questions. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. And and again, we're coming back to this point. Life is hectic. The speed at which we do everything is increasing all the time. You know, when you said in the article, there's so many channels, there's so many touch points. We could literally spend our days optimizing and analyzing total nonsense because we had a client again who was looking at performance of a individual media owner one day versus another and, and say, can we figure out why the, the why the click-through rate's gone down 17%? It's like, it just varies. You, you need a longer time frame to look at data because it has to aggregate to make any sense of it. Other than that, you're just myopically focusing on something that's a fool's errand. And this happens all the time. Like the example, the good example I had before was like, you remember the blind taste test for Pepsi back in the whatever 80s, I think it was, where you know, people tested Pepsi and people tested Coke. And te- Pepsi came out the preferred choice in on that blind taste test. And that was a that has huge implications because then Coke changed, rechanged or changed their formulation. But actually what happened was, yes, Pepsi tasted nicer in a sip. But actually, if you drank a full can of it, it was too sickly. And people don't drink in sips and then put the can away for another few hours and then drink another sip. They drink a whole can. So by looking at that data over two short a time frame, it completely skewed everything. It was a disastrous move and it gave a false version of the truth. So you could spend your time looking at click-through rates, fussing about day versus day, but it is utterly useless because, as I say, data use um, has to aggregate. And I think, and I think you agree with this, that so much of our time measuring at an execution layer is kind of paralyzing us and it's stopping us doing some of those other things. I had Colin Gordon on a couple of weeks ago and he gave me a great line I'd never heard before. Ronald Reagan used to use it and it was, don't just do something, stand there. I didn't get what it meant at the time. I really didn't understand it, but then I thought about it, I was like, Sometimes we're afraid to just stand there. We always have to be seen to be doing something. We are afraid to not do something. And sometimes you have to not do. You just have to observe and understand and look. But one of the things, you know, I wonder, I think everyone would agree with that, but I wonder, and I've said it to people internally, how would you feel if you walked around the agency back in the days when we were in the office and you saw people sitting back and reading an article about something? Would you say, that's great, this person spending time to, you know, open, keep fresh perspectives and to kind of read? Or would you say, why is that person not doing enough? Maybe they need another client. And I don't know what the answer would be because I I think back to the analogy, we like to look into the woods and see frantic chopping. That's what we like to do because that gives us a comfort that everyone's busy and somebody who doesn't look busy, I don't know how long they say, well, you know, I'm reading, I like to carve out two hours a day to read. I think that time might be taken off people if it was. So is this just a cultural thing that we got to get used to? Life moves fast. We don't have time anymore. Is that just accept it? Stop moaning about it, Dave. It's just the way it's going to be. I am going to answer your question, but I just have to say, I love your Pepsi example. I didn't know that. So uh, that's going to be one that I'm going to be stealing from you and using. I definitely stole it. From, so I, it's definitely not mine. I don't know where I read it, but sure, I've plagiarized <laughs> everything at this stage. So it doesn't matter. If you can say it three times, it becomes yours. That's the, that's the rule. Uh, well, there you go. I'll also just claim I was still in school at that point. So that's probably why I don't remember it. But anyhow, <laughs> so I'm going to answer your question in two parts. If I, if I take your point about not doing something is sometimes the best thing to do, I couldn't agree more. Yes, 100%. Um, I think that there's a lot of merit in looking at more than just one single data point. Looking at trends and relationships is how we learn. It's how we gain the insight that we need. Trying to understand how things are linked, figuring out cause and effect is how we continuously improve our plans. But a single data point is literally just a snapshot Mm. and it isn't going to give the depth that we need. Um, What I love about Dentsu is that we have a model that means that we look at different data over different time periods, depending on what we're trying to learn. And so that there's there's kind of heaps of slides and kind of loads of stuff that I can talk about in terms of the different ways that we break down that data and why we look at certain things in certain ways. But what it means, and all of that means, is that we're focusing on the right metrics for the right purpose. 
Your second point about the um, having the luxury of time, I think that one's harder to answer. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think particularly now it feels ever more pressured. And I think the last year in, in its own right has changed the dynamic for many of us, probably permanently, but it's definitely changed it. If you think about it, there's ever more pressure to always be available now because we're accessible on mm. Teams or Zoom calls and things like that. But even with that pressure, I think it's incredibly important to take a few minutes out to read something that interests us or have a chat or pick a colleague's brain on something that we've done or possibly something that they've done and we find interesting. I don't know about you, but throughout my career, and I'm, I'm really conscious of this, I've, I've learned so much by what I would call osmosis. Mm -hmm. I've picked up ideas and thoughts from my colleagues just hearing what's going on around me. And I know that at this moment in time, we're stuck behind screens and not able to have that human interaction that makes learning so much easier. But I think that in itself makes it so much more important to press pause sometimes mm -hmm. and talk to each other or read a book or read mm -hmm. an article. But it's that conversation and just listening to what other people are talking about. You said yourself, there's an incredible piece of work in terms of the uh, analysis on budget setting, a kind of share of voice that's been done. I cannot wait to read that mm -hmm. because I want to learn what other people do, how they're approaching something so that I can then tease out little yeah. bits that could help influence how I approach something differently in the future. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And as I said at the start, I'm passionate about this as well. And you talk about, you know, time comes up quite a lot. And that's what people will always say. I don't have time. We never have time. We never seem to have enough time to do anything, right? It doesn't, it's just the way life is. We don't have enough time to do anything. And going back, refocusing, time is a big part of that. A lot of people will say, oh, I have too short a turnaround time on, the, on this brief. And, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. I know for a fact, the more time you have, the longer it will take you. It just it just does because it can it, it can never be not improved upon. But also, in my experience, when when any time we've got a really unreasonable deadline, it wasn't from a client's point of view. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't done to annoy us. It was either done because they have a deadline that they're facing with a product launch or something like that, or actually, more often than not, it's because they didn't realize it was such an unreasonable deadline. They didn't realize that they were not giving us enough time to do it properly. And any time, I can't remember a time where I went back and said, you know, we need longer to do this, where a client has said, absolutely not. I, usually they're fine. So um, a lot of these things about creating time and, and actually keeping a, a fresh perspective, and just trying to carve out some time, a lot of it's habit forming. So like everybody knows they should read more. Everybody knows they should do things outside of your immediate day-to-day -day specialism in order to kind of keep a fresh perspective. Sometimes just go off and read something. You'll find something that you will draw upon two, three months later. You have to keep stimulating your brain to with fresh perspectives. I've heard lots of tips and tricks. I'm deliberately not going to say, because someone from the office will listen to this and they'll be saying right now, I said that to him and he's not giving me credit for it. And I'm deliberately not going to give her credit for it. So um, she'll know who it is. But it was a great <laughs> tip saying, you know what, if you, in terms of reading, what you should do is when you want to create a new habit, attach the reading bit to something that is already a carved out habit in your day. So if you're the type of person who says, I really enjoy my morning coffee 15 minutes in the morning, attach reading an article to that thing. And it's much easier to then create an, a new habit or form a new habit by attaching to an existing one. So do you have any tips that you use to help find some time or allow you that kind of time to breathe in between meetings and churning work out? Any tips you can give? Well, I suppose I actually find a lot of my best ideas come when I'm not thinking about the problems that I'm trying to solve. I don't know if that makes sense, but I suppose... Mm. Does. If you go back to the, this is kind of days of living in London and 
kind of days of living here, in the days we were able to go into the office, a lot of my ideas would come to me when I was traveling into or home from work. Um, mm. And I know that there's probably some science out there about how when you step away from a problem, you can actually get a clearer picture of how to solve it. Because when you're in the detail mm. and kind of in the trenches, you're not able to see the wood for the trees, whereas when you step back, you can. And to be honest, that's what I find so often happens to me that yeah. when I switch off and I'm thinking about something completely different, I'm reading my book and I, I read an awful lot of um, fiction and also a lot of books, that's when ideas pop into my head. Mm. And I've started, and to be honest, I started this literally back in the days when I was, you can imagine, on the London Underground, um, you're kind of stuck in a cram space. So I carry a notebook with me now. And I jot the ideas down that I pop up, that kind of pop up into my head when I least expect it. Because that way, I'm not stuck kind of going, that was a really good idea. I've got to try to remember it and keep it. Are, are you not worried it people means, are going to think you're a weirdo? Just take, no, no, you're fucking jotting stuff down. <laughs> Let's be honest. People probably think I'm a weirdo anyway. True. I don't really care. But what it means is I'm scribbling it down really, really quickly. And then I can tune out about off, mm. kind of forget about it until the next day until I'm actually starting work and then I've got the notes these yeah. days this is probably when people really do think I'm a little bit barking mad because these days a lot of those ideas are coming to me when I go out for my daily walk mm. and I've got my great big headphones on and I'm listening to my audio book and I'm kind of power walking around whichever area that I'm in and so I've had to start embracing technology and because I'm not going to carry when I'm out for a walk I am not going to start carrying a notebook so I've had to embrace technology and start leaving myself voice notes. So yeah, I think that anybody who lives out in the kind of step aside region of Dublin is probably seeing some slightly nutty woman who walks around talking to herself, kind of telling her the latest notes of ideas that she's had. Mm. Look, definitely. It's a well-proven fact. I've no stats to back it up, but it is well-proven. Take, your, take yourself away from a problem for a few minutes and come back to it with fresh eyes. And that could be anything. So, you know, quite, I find myself looking at something for a long time and I, I just can't get it. I just can't figure it out. And rather than accept I, I can't get it, I think I've spent so long at it, I can't afford to leave it alone now for 10 minutes. But, but anytime I've had to, or like even take a break, have a walk around the block, come back, do something else. And you find that you will get to a solution quicker on it. I, the same thing about the notes. I used to always have, I'd wake up, I'd be, something would be bothering me working on something or a pitch or whatever. And I'd wake up from sleep and I'd go, wow, that's a great idea. And I'd say, I'll, I'll remember that tomorrow. And I can never remember it the next day. So I have a notebook by my bed where if I, if I think of anything, some Eureka thing, I just write it down. And actually then, the writing it down is quite therapeutic as well. So if I've something on my mind and I can't think of it and it's bothering me and I can't go to sleep or whatever the case may be, if I just kind of write down some thoughts on it, I feel like I've taken it from my head. It's down on paper and I can now, I just go to sleep a lot better. So a lot to be said for that. So write it down, make your notes. I do. It's funny you talk about the voice recording stuff. When I started working in um, what was all Ireland media, which became Karen's now Dentsu, Lee McDonald used to walk around with a kind of a dictaphone thing and he'd be recording notes to himself and I was like what is that nutbag doing he'd be walking around notes to self it was kind of like Alan Partridge used to do I was like it's really weird but yeah it makes a lot of sense right read the article in the Irish Times because this has been a great chat we've covered quite a lot of stuff but there's some really nice kind of pointed facts in there and it's well worth the read. It's 1,200 words, so it's well worth the read. You'll get it online or in the paper. So, Maxine, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed that. Maybe it might just be me and you who'll enjoy it, but I certainly enjoyed it. And <laughs> that's what really matters at the end of the day. So um, thanks for joining me. And um, I hope it wasn't too daunting for you. I hope you enjoyed it. Well, thank you for the invite. Yes, it absolutely was daunting, but... 
you and I have enough chats over the time, so this feels just like one of them. It is just one of them. Yeah, you know, there's not hundreds of thousands of people listening. Maybe this will be the record breaker. Who knows? But anyway, Maxine, stay safe. Thank you so much. And everyone, until two weeks' time, stay safe. Bye-bye. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.